Good morning to those of you just waking up. Hello to everybody else. Welcome to the latest installment of The Dented Can. I am your host, Dave. And on today's episode, we'll be finishing up uh, our list of grunge stuff that we started last week. But first, I'd like to take a minute to thank everybody for listening. Uh, And that I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to share my thoughts and all the things that I love and try and, you know, um, it was a weird weekend. Uh, and, and that theme that we've kind of seen start to weave itself into, uh, the show, but, you know, we deal with, uh, daily is loss, um, I learned of the loss of a very talented, wonderful young woman uh, who I was graciously blessed to have the opportunity to meet and 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 enjoy her her music. Um, you know, and it was in a really great setting because she was my neighbor, so it was you know it was a little bit more than just a you know on-stage presence as a fan. Well, I would be in the crowd. She would be on stage. <laughs> um, but then my my neighbor upstairs lost his father. And, you know, like, they were together upstairs. And it really just kind of, just, you know, it shook me. Um, you know, this is kind of weird. Usually we just see something in passing and then later on we hear, oh, you know, this happened at the, the grocery store. You know, man, nobody survived that accident on, you know, 95. It was terrible, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but this is, you know, a kid, you know, that I know. Um... You know, we're not close, but we, we live together, you know, in the same building. Um, and it's just, you know, just to, I, I couldn't imagine. And it just kind of made me a little more grateful, um, you know, for this. And a reminder of, you know, why, why we do things. Why we try gardening. I'm gardening because... I've always wanted to try it, and I think the spurring of me wanting to was, you know, in a, in a fairy tale kind of way. It's the spirit of Callie and my uncle, and you know, the people that I love that I've lost over the over the years, saying, "Hey, you know, live, experience, be happy." Um, it was probably just a a reaction to, you know, hey, there is a lot of space left in my life that I need to fill. Um, do we need to get all technical and, and, and scientific? No. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great experience. 
I just lost a ton of seedlings. Most of them were jalapeno peppers, which is arguably one of my favorite veggies. Oh, so I'm just, I'm feeling really grateful and, you know, I hope that people continue to share their stuff, uh, especially in the group page. That's really, uh, you know, that's, it's great to see what other people are doing and, and the, the happiness that doing those things brings them. So, you know, it's, it's never a dull moment. And I guess that's, that's good. That's a good thing. Um, you know, because we always make it through these difficult times. And, you know, depending on how you use it. You know, so, again, let's, we're not going to get all scientific. I just, a little open-hearted sharing. I think it's good for the soul. So, uh, we're going to take a quick break because I've been rambling for a little bit now. Uh, we're going to get back to our list. All right, we're back. And we're going to be continuing our list from last week. Uh, we were going over this piece that I found on classic rock and culture. Um, about 20 things, precursors, you could say, to the 1991 grunge explosion with the release of Nirvana's Nevermind album. And leading off today is Mother Love Bone. Um, and what they say here is Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard's next project after Green River was Mother Love Bone. Uh, guitarist Bruce Fairweather, who'd also been a Green River member, joined the new group along with drummer Greg Gilmore and singer Andrew Wood who was in Malfunction. It was Wood who really helped set the group apart. His lively onstage persona, eclectic fashion sense, and colorful lyrics earning the band attention. Mother Love Bone put out their debut EP, Shine, in 1989, and received substantial buzz behind the release. They'd soon return to the studio to record their debut album, Apple. But on March 19th, 1990, days before the LP's release, Wood overdosed on heroin and died. Mother Love Bone disbanded with its members soon moving on to other projects. Um, that's a, a fantastic album. Uh, they have a, a two-disc I believe it's, um, I don't know if it's Apple with another one. I haven't listened to it in, ah, uh, 10 years. I'll have to dig that out. <laughs> um, but it had a couple, the second disc had a couple different versions of other songs. And it's, 
it's one listen it's what one of those clothed dancer crown of thorns and uh it's just uh that that song really gets to you at least for me i think it's a great album uh next on the list ironically enough is heroin the 60s had LSD, the 80s had cocaine, but in the 90s, heroin was the drug of choice, especially with those surrounding the grunge movement. Some of the biggest names in the genres infamously fought their addiction to the drug, including Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley, Andrew Wood, Courtney Love, and Jonathan Melvin from the Smashing Pumpkins. Of the aforementioned names, only Love has survived. As grunge surged in the early 90s, headlines across the nation focused on the growing number of heroin users in Seattle. The New York Times claimed the city's three main drugs were espresso, beer, and heroin. A mid-90s Rolling Stone article described the Emerald City as Junkie Town, heroin chic, a look characterized by pale skin, dark circles under the eyes, and gaunt features became a popular fashion trend at the time, thanks largely to the grunge influence. Still, some argued that Seattle's heroin problem was just similar to any major city at the time as heroin numbers across America saw a staggering increase. Not sure how much of that's really changed. <laughs> um, next on the list, Temple of the Dog. Uh, I guess, for me, in my opinion, I would definitely call them a super group. Um, and well, after you hear this, you can formulate your own opinion. Temple of the Dog. In the wake of Andrew Wood's death, Chris Cornell, who had been the singer's roommate, pursued a project in his late friend's honor. Cornell would recruit Wood's former bandmates Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, adding guitarist Mike McCready and drummer Matt Cameron into the fold. Cornell penned a pair of songs early on, Reach Down and Say Hello to Heaven, while Gossard and Ament brought with them ideas that were left unfinished in Mother Love Bone. Soon, Temple of the Dog had taken shape, and the band recorded an album of material over the course of two weeks in the winter of 1990. Excuse me. Joining in during the sessions was a singer named Eddie Vetter, who had just come on come up from San Diego to join Gossard and Ahmed in a new group called Mookie Blaylock. In hindsight, his involvement really cemented Temple of the Dog as a Soundgarden-Pearl Jam hybrid, even though the latter group wasn't formed yet. Released in April 1991, Temple of the Dog earned positive reviews with the single Hunger Strike becoming a radio hit. Still, the supergroup's members 
had their own respective careers to focus on, leaving the impactful self-titled LP as the only release Temple of the Dogs history. Well, they even mentioned Supergroup, so it kind of defeats my... But as you can see, it kind of was a little bit different. Um, and I thought that Pearl Jam formed before Temple of the Dog, but after Mother Love Bone, obviously. So see, I'm still learning stuff. Next, Pearl Jam. By now, the story is rock legend. Eddie Vedder, a gas station attendant, is handed a demo tape by a new band in Seattle, made up of former members of Mother Love Bone. Listening to the instrumental tracks, he writes lyrics, records his vocals, and sends the band his tape. Soon he's on a plane to Seattle where he'd meet his soon-to-be new bandmates. They called themselves Mookie Blaylock, named after the basketball player, before later adopting the name Pearl Jam. For a whole generation of rock fans, the argument of Nirvana versus Pearl Jam was akin to the Beatles versus Stones one in the 60s. Despite rumors to the contrary, the bands themselves were friendly enough yet still competitive. Though Nevermind is looked back upon as the landmark grunge release, it was really Pearl Jam's debut LP, 10, that proves the genre could be commercially viable. Whether 10 would have sold a whooping 13 million copies in the U.S. without getting caught in the momentum of Nevermind is up for debate. Still, the Pearl Jam classic will always have bragging rights for arriving first. The LP was released August 27th, 1991, roughly one month before Nevermind. Wow, how about that? Honestly, I think Pearl Jam would have done just fine um, if we were in an alternate universe that Nirvana never had existed. Um, but... Uh, I was. I'm still a little more partial to Pearl Jam. Um, their sound um, over Nirvana. There's a couple Nirvana tracks that are absolute masterpieces to me, though. Um, it's that uh, breed. Negative creep. That whole Bleach album is awesome, actually. I think it's better. Bug in the studio, flying in my face. <laughs> Jeez, see? Never a dull moment. Uh, as we go. Black Dog Forge. It was a small room in a basement underneath Blacksmith, converted into a rehearsal space for bands. The entryway was through an alley plumbing pipes ran across the room's ceiling and sheets were tacked onto the walls to give it better acoustics in short it was about as far from multi-million dollar rock stardom as one could get 
Yet that's exactly why Black Dog Forge was so beloved among grunge artists. Everyone rehearsed there, including Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, and Pearl Jam. The latter band reportedly took their new singer, Eddie Vedder, immediately there when he first arrived in Seattle. For a 30 by 30 foot room, Black Dog Forge certainly carved a unique space in grunge lore. The Off-Ramp hmm. Like many of the grunge world's most famous spots, the Off-Ramp was an unassuming locale. The building had housed many businesses over the years, including grocery stores and a pharmacy, before becoming being turned into a disco. Throughout the 70s, it would host dance, jazz, and soul artists, it wouldn't be until 1986 that it took on its most famous moniker, the Off-Ramp Cafe. As the grunge movement emerged, the Off-Ramp became a must-play venue for many of the local acts. Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Munhuddy are among the artists who took to its stage. But the club will always be connected with Pearl Jam. On October 22, 1990, the band then called Mookie Blaylock, played its first concert, a slot at the off-ramp opening for Alice in Chains. The set list that night included songs that would go on to become some of grunge's biggest hits, including Alive, Black, and Evenflow. Huh. A little history. <laughs> Uh, Easy Street Records. Matt Vaughn was just a teenager when he dropped out of college to start Easy Street Records. It's become, it's since become one of the most beloved record stores in the U.S. and largely earned its reputation during the rise of grunge. Vaughn founded the store in 1987 and was a proud supporter of local Seattle music from day one. It wasn't just that Easy Street offered a great selection of up-and-coming artists, but that shoppers might run into them in the store's aisles. Pretty much any band you can think, think of from the scene, including Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam, stopped by Easy Street. Some gave performances, while others were just like any other music fan, searching through the store's massive collection to find some gems. Even in the years since grunge's heyday, Easy Street has stayed connected to the genre. In 2019, the store made headlines when it discovered some old items deep in its storage closet, including a royalty check and receipt that used to belong to Kurt Cobain. Okay. <laughs> Fashion. For a music trend to become a true cultural movement, it has to spread beyond notes on vinyl or CD and reach, well, today, you know, in the stream, cloud, whatever, uh, and reach other aspects of society. Historically, music and fashion have regularly influenced one another. Think of the Beatles, Mop Tops, the Flower Power, 
aesthetic aligned with the summer of love, or even the polyester of disco. For grunge, the world adopted flannel shirts and torn jeans. Or as a 1992 CBS news report described it, an urban lumberjack. Anything goes ensemble of duck boots, tattered shirts, and long underwear. Still, this look far preceded the music. For starving artists in the Pacific Northwest, thrift store shopping presented options on a budget. A well-worn pair of jeans could go days without being washed, while flannel shirts, like those worn by many of the area's lumberjacks, provided a comfy, warm, and affordable top option. The look may have been commonplace in Seattle for years, but as grunge artists exploded on the national stage, the aesthetics gave the genre a visual all its own. I mean, I guess I'm stuck there, because I've... That's what I've worn my entire life. What's <sighs> next? KXRX. While the previously mentioned KCMU was the first radio station giving grunge bands a platform, it was still an amateur outfit run out of a local university. While that set setup fit the grunge ethos perfectly, it didn't necessarily speak to the masses. Enter KXRX, the first commercial radio station to blast grunge on its airwaves. The station, known as The X, began broadcasting in 1987 and quickly launched, latched onto the begrudging local music scene. Seeing firsthand the gravitational pull of these new artists, the X moved acts like Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam into their rotation long before other commercial rock stations. Some may argue this was the beginning of the end. After all, commercial support went against the anti-commercial foundation grunge was built upon. Of course, such debates would be rendered moot by the time MTV and the world at large sunk their collective teeth into Nevermind, setting a massive culture shift into motion. All right. So that's the list. That's the list. I I, I love the, the last one talking about the, the, the commercialism. Um, here in, in, in my hometown, Bridgeport, uh, they turned a minor league baseball stadium into a, an amphitheater. And it's, it's amazing. And it's wonderful. And I'm stoked that, it, that he built it. And until I look at the ticket prices. And, you know, I appreciate what Pearl Jam does, trying to keep, you know, tickets affordable. Um, everything is, has, has turned to be about money rather than being able to support the music. You know, I think that if you make the tickets 
accessible to only, you know, the richer end of the scale, you'd sell less tickets. Um, you know, I don't know. It, it just... I, wow, I'm getting off track here because he started thinking about an article uh, I read. Um, not an article, a post on Facebook um, about a parking lot down in downtown by this same amphitheater that went from being free to, you know, the company that owns it monetized it and now they, you got to pay. It's just... Ugh. I love I love that we live in a place where you should you're rewarded for working and it's good to make money and it's good to be able to be successful but you know I don't know I am rambling because I am not an economics guy you know, as long as I can pay my bills and call it a day, put food in my food hole, we're good. So, um, that's the that's the article. It was really just a list of twenty things uh, that kind of existed and may or may not have helped. Uh, bring the grunge culture to light or, or whatever. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of these things, the radio stations, not so much, but definitely the bands, uh, the music and the, 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 the mentality of the culture was something that I grew up in, grew up with, watched it from, you know, its inception and how it's just kind of bled into you know, mainstream society. So, um, you know, but at the end of the day, it's about the music. Uh, it's wonderful to see Pearl Jam still, still making music, still making new music, uh, still out on the road. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of these bands that I grew up with are, uh, you know, they're, you don't hear them touring as much, but Pearl Jam's out there. Um, so, well, I'm going to wrap this episode up. I appreciate you guys. Uh, next week is going to be a real fun episode. Um, being kind of a part of the skate culture as a kid, I still, I still love watching all the guys and girls down at the skate park. Um, but our guest next, next episode is going to be, uh, well, he goes by Lil Andy on Instagram. His name is Andrew Kleisen and he's my boy. So, um, we're going to talk about, uh, something new to me. Um, scooters. Scooters, but at the skate park. Um, 
getting extreme like a lot of the skateboarders I grew up with. Uh, so I'm eager to talk about this. So that's coming up next week. We'll also be talking about everything I've learned about gardening so far. Um, you can see some progress photos on the Instagram page. Maybe I'll post some in the Facebook group page. Of course, I'm going to post some stuff in, about that in the Facebook group page. That's what it's about. <laughs> uh, and just a lot of cool things. So, um, yeah. I appreciate everybody for listening. I appreciate your support. Um, we're still, you know, trying to get Callie's Hope together, too. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that. And... Uh, that's it. And what do I say? That's right. If you dented the can, the beer was good. Peace.